Good morning. Thank you so much. Every year he comes in to bless us. Thank you, sir. He's written books. He's got CDs available. Uh, so check out uh, the man over there, the legend. Hey, this morning we're going to uh, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, if you brought them. Genesis 10, 5. Genesis 10, 5. And just to give you an idea of what we're going to do, we're going to go for uh, about till 15 after and talk about the mission of God. Good to know the title, because what happens if you email me and say, send me your PowerPoints? Delete. You need to send me a, the title of the slide. So we're going to talk about the mission of God in Scripture uh, until about 15 after. Then we're going to take a 10-minute break and come back for Q&A. And I'm just telling you right now, there's been five questions asked. And you're not allowed to submit new questions, okay? All questions in written form prior to my arrival. No, um, <laughs> there has been five questions asked that we're going to look at, and they are uh, really intriguing. Uh, I've spent time since I've seen them just processing, praying through them, seeking counsel on just how to, how to uh, answer them. And so I just, uh, you don't want to miss the Q&A time. Again, it's just five questions, and then we'll dismiss uh, and get out and go see the kids Genesis 10.5, Genesis 10.5, it says this. Your version might sound a little different than mine, but it says this. From these, the people spread out each their own land, each their own language, each their own clan, each their own nation. Genesis chapter 10, verse 5. Many of you had that memorized. Genesis 10.5. Uh, From these, the people spread out each their own land, their own people, their own language, their own nation. Now, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He wrote from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And he gets to Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, and he says, From these the nations spread out each their own land, their own language, their own people, their own nation. Then, starting in verse 6 all the way to verse 32, he will give you what's called the table of the nations. Matter of fact, in your heading of Genesis 10, many of your Bible headings says, Table of the Nations. From Genesis chapter 10, verse 6 to verse 32, Moses will list the languages God creates. There will be 70. You can count them in your own time. Seventy languages make up the table of the nations. This is where we get the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amalekites, the Ninevites. All the ites flow from Genesis chapter 10. Then Moses, as if, he's, as if he lifts his head up from the paper, he realizes my readers don't understand why I scattered the nations. I need to tell them. So turn the page, Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make a name for ourselves. These should be scattered to the face of the whole earth. So the Lord comes down, he sees the city they're building, and he touches their tongues and scatters them. Genesis 10 and 11 are not in chronological order. Moses will first list the table of the nations and then tell you why they were scattered. Now, if you had zero knowledge of the Bible and you tripped on one on a curb and you picked it up and began to read it, and you got to Genesis chapter 10, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is about the table of the nations, how God scattered the nations. Genesis chapter 11, why the nations were scattered. Then you would naturally think to yourself, man, this book, because there's 70 languages created, this book is going to be about 70 nations and how each nation responded to God. So you turn to Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, and you realize God is focusing in on one nation, the Israelites. Genesis 26, Isaac, Abraham's son, we're still in the nation of Israel. Genesis 28, Jacob, we're still in the nation of Israel. Genesis 35, Joseph, we're still talking about Israel. And then you turn to Exodus chapter 1, and you're like, okay, we're going to take a new nation. And all of a sudden, you realize, guess what? 
Exodus, the whole book, the second book of the Bible, is only about how God's people Israel left Egypt and got to the promised land. Then you get to Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, this is just about a specific tribe of Israel. And then Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, is only about numbering the nation of Israel. Then Deuteronomy. And you're like, wow, I get to Deuteronomy, and we're still talking about the 613 Levitical laws that the nation of Israel has to adhere to. The sixth book of the Bible, Joshua, right? You're like, okay, finally, can we, get, can, we, can we stop talking about the nation of Israel? Well, the sixth book of the Bible is only about how Israel goes into the promised land and drives out the 31 kings. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing the kings of Israel emerge. Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam. You see him, the splitting of the kingdom. You see him go into exile, out of exile, into exile, out of exile. Then all of a sudden you get to the blank page of the Bible. Where it says New Testament. And you look down and you're like, oh my goodness. I got page 670. Malachi 4, the last book of the Old Testament ends on page 670. And you go, oh my goodness, 670 pages of the holiest book on the planet revolve around one nation. 670 pages of the holiest book on the planet revolve around one nation, the Israelites. Matter of fact, where that nation of Israel goes, you, the reader, goes. The only reason you hear about the Canaanites, Hittites, Amalekites, and Ninevites is because they ran into the Israelites. Why is it that 670 pages of the holiest book on the planet revolve around one nation that never numbered more than three million people that no one really cared about in history? So I'm sitting at Starbucks where God moves. And I decide I'm going to write I'm going to write a one verse summary on the Old Testament. And here's what I got. This is my one sentence summary on the first 670 pages of the Bible. Out of all the nations, God chose one nation to reach all the nations. That's the best one sentence summary I can come up with of the first 670 pages of the Bible. Out of all the nations, in Genesis chapter 10, those 70 nations that God created, God chose one nation, the Israelites, in Genesis chapter 12. But it wasn't for that nation. It was so that they would go back and reach the 69 other nations. Out of all the nations, God chose one nation to reach all the nations. Out of all the nations... God chose one nation to reach all the nations. Now, my major in college was elementary education, so I'm thinking about how can I process this to third graders? And I'm like, man, if you were to diagram this out, this is how it would look. And so if you draw these three circles down and read the Old Testament through this grid, it really opens up understanding. God, Elohim, Yahweh, all the nations are his, sets his affections on the nation of Israel, but it wasn't for them. It's so that all nations would be blessed through Israel. God blessing Israel to bless the nations. God blessing Israel to bless the nations. That's the theme of the first 670 pages of the Bible. God blessing Israel to bless the nations. Genesis chapter 12. Abram, Abraham, leave. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land. I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. But guess what? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Get used to hearing God say this. He's only going to repeat it 1,600 more times that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Israel. All peoples on earth. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 4. 
The leading scholar of all of Europe who passed away a few years ago, his name was John Stott. John Stott states, Genesis 12, 1 through 4, are perhaps the most important passages in all the Bible. The whole of God's purpose is encapsulated here. And I'm like, wait, what? What? Genesis 12? I'd never even heard of it. Genesis 12, 1 through 4? Why? He says this because Genesis 1 through 5, the creation, humanity, the sin, Genesis 7 and 8, the flood of the earth, Genesis 9, 10, and 11, the scattering of the nations, Genesis chapter 12, God bunkers down and his mission begins with Abraham. And the domino tips, I, as I've studied this passage, I call this passage the Abrahamic revolution because it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Joshua to David to the prophets to Jesus, the apostles to us. But the domino tips with Abraham. Abraham, leave, leave. I'm going to bless you, but it's not for you. It's so that you will be a blessing to the nations. Isaac, guess what? Just like your father. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and through through your offspring. All peoples or all nations will be blessed. Jacob, Genesis 28. Guess what? Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west, to the east, and north, and south. Why? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're not even out of Genesis yet, and you see the mission of God unfolding. God blessing Israel to bless the nations. God blessing Israel to bless the nations. Genesis 32, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And where Israel goes, you, the reader, goes. Where Israel goes, you, the reader, goes. Moses, I want you to take the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai. Have you and Aaron come up to the top of it. They stay at the base of it. And this is what I want you to tell the house of Jacob, what I want you to tell the people of Israel. You've seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Out of all the nations you will be. And then he inserts this language to... to, to to describe Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests. Israel, I'm making you a kingdom of priests. Well, why would he use that term? What does a priest do? Go to any Catholic church, knock on the door, and ask the priest, what is it that you do? And the priest will say, as a priest, I'm a mediator. I'm a go-betweener. Well, who do you go between? Well, God sets me between him and the common person. The common person speaks to me, and I speak to God. God speaks to me, and I speak to the common person. That's what a priest means, a go-betweener. Israel, you are my nation of go-betweeners. Well, who are we setting in between, God? Me and the nations. Me and the nations. And as you read the Old Testament, you see God pouring out his blessing to the nation of Israel. One of the ways he blessed them was he allowed them to have this incredible temple. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon, who's dedicating this temple, prays over the temple. Now, the context is the nation of Israel is on one side of a cliff and Solomon's on the other. He lifts up his head and he prays. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, and the entire nation of Israel is like, kill him, curse him. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land, curse him, don't let him in. When he comes and he prays towards this heaven and towards this temple, watch what he says. Do whatever the foreigner asks. Wait, what? 
You mean the Philistines who we're at war with, when they come to our temple, they have access, and whatever they pray, you're asking God to respond? The closest equivalent that I can, that I can figure regarding the tension they felt when Solomon prayed this would be as if your pastor stood up on a Sunday morning and said, Father, I pray that every Muslim in this community would come to this church, and whatever they ask, you'd respond. Why did Solomon pray this? Look at this. So that all peoples of the earth, there it is again, all peoples of the earth may know your name. Where did he learn this from? He learned this from his father, David. This is a Davidic prayer over the nation of Israel. May God be gracious to us, Israel. Bless us, Israel. Make his face shine upon us, Israel. But do not be deceived. It is not for us, Israel. It is so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. God, blessing Israel to bless the nations. God, blessing Israel to bless the nations. A buddy of mine called me up. His name's Matt. He's like, bro, I got a Bible study. I got a Bible study. There's 10 guys, and they're, they're all in their 30s. They've all made a lot of money, and they're all believers. And I'm trying to get these 10 guys to study the Bible. He's like, so I gave the book of Matthew to all of them, and we've been reading the book of Matthew, and at this last Bible study, these guys who are businessmen are fired up because they came across this thing called the Great Commission. And they're like, man, if a good commission is 10 to 15%, what's a great commission going to be? And so he's like, Todd, would you come in and talk to us about this Great Commission? And I'm like, absolutely. I open my Bible to Genesis chapter 12. He says, uh, brother... The Great Commission's not in Genesis 12, it's in Matthew 28. I slapped him and took his Bible. I said, you're not ready for this. I said, Jesus did not give the Great Commission. He repeated it. Genesis 12, 1 through 4 is the Great Commission. Overlay that with Matthew 28 and it fits perfect. And I begin to show him Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, David. We get to about right here and my friend Matt's like, bro... Slow down. You said God wants to bless Israel, bless Israel, bless Israel over and over again. He says, what does it mean when you say God blesses the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? I'm like, man, Matt, that's a great question. I said, in the Old Testament, when God pours out his blessing on the nation of Israel, you will always see an increase in four things. So when God pours out his blessing on Israel in the Old Testament, you always see four things. You see an increase in land, family, finances, and a great name. Those are the four things you see as God pours out his blessing. Land, family, finances, and a great name. Land, think about that. Genesis 13, Abraham, I'm going to give you the land between the Nile and the Euphrates. Family, Genesis 12, Abraham, go out to the Mediterranean Sea, throw the sand in the air, that will be your descendants. Finances, Genesis 13, Abraham, when you get into the land, don't take a dime from the kings, I will be your wealth. Genesis 12, 3, Abraham, I'm going to give you a great name that the audience of the nations will be yours. And my friend Matt's processing this. He's like, okay, land, family, finances, and a great name. Land, my house, you know, my, my yard, my fence, my stuff. Family, my two boys, raising them in a godly home. Finances, putting food on the table, money back for college, money back for retirement. A great name, what motivates me to get up and put in a 40-hour work week.
He says, Todd, it's an 80-hour week just to manage my blessings. He's like, I don't have time to pass them on to the nations. I'm trying not to drown in how God has blessed me. He says, maybe the problem with the average believer in the church today is we've reduced the mission of God to just managing our blessings. Invite the average believer to do something missionally for God. Pray for the world. Reach out to the neighbors. Help out with a church plant. Go to the nations. And the reason they don't, can't, or won't is because of the blessing God's given them. Oh, man. When was that outreach Sunday? Yeah, that's right in the middle of our vacation. Oh, what night's that Bible study on how I can live purposeful and learn how to share my faith? Yeah, that's baseball night. Oh, tell me about that. Oh, I would go, but I'm real busy. And you look up and you're like, the number one reason people don't engage God with his mission is because they're busy managing the blessings. The further you go into the Old Testament, the more God pours out his blessing on the nation of Israel. Land, family, finances, a great name, the temple, the sacrifices, the feasts, the Sabbath rest, the hymnals, the priests, the presence, the protection. But the further you go into the Old Testament, the more blessed the nation of Israel becomes, the more disobedient they emerge. Jonah, Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh. No, Lord, as a dispenser of your grace, I determine who gets it and who doesn't, and the Ninevites don't deserve. So he gets on a boat, the opposite direction, goes across the Mediterranean and tries to land in Malaga, Spain. Jonah's only four chapters. It's a fascinating book. And if you just take a pen and circle everything in Jonah that obeys God. Circle everything in the book of Jonah that obeys God. The storm obeys God as it creates wind. The sailors obey God as they cast lots. The lots obey God as they fall on Jonah. The sailors obey God as they throw Jonah overboard. The fish obeys God as it swallows Jonah. The storm obeys God as it's calmed. The fish obeys God as it bursts Jonah back up. The Ninevites obey God as they repent. The, the, the vine obeys God as it grows up. The worm obeys God as it eats the vine. And you go, everything in the book of Jonah obeyed God. Except the person on the boat who knew the Bible the best. The person on the boat who knew the Bible the best justified his inactivity the most.
How does God summarize at the end of the Old Testament how the nation of Israel responded? How do they do? Wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said to them, these are the Lord's people, yet they had to leave his blessing. And systematically, God pulls the nation of Israel's blessing. Land, they're carried into exile. Family, hundreds of thousands killed. Finances, the temple reduced to rubble. A great name. You dare not speak of the name of Israel. Least your house fall to judgment. And so I think what I've realized, you know, is, is, is there is something intrinsically difficult about when God blesses us to pass that blessing on and keep it with an open hand. I mean, I, I don't think many of you know this, but my wife and I, we spent seven years traveling to 622 college campuses, challenging 100,000 or so college students who were Christians to give five years of their life after they graduate college to the Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Chinese, and tribal world. So for seven years, campus to campus, 622 colleges, challenging university Christians. And we got to this one campus. We weren't speaking on the campus, but we just heard so much about the campus that we wanted to visit the campus. We got to this one campus, and we, and we were walking around, and all of a sudden the campus minister came up to us and said, oh, you're visitors, you're not college students, can I show you around the campus? And we're like, yes, we just heard so much about the campus. And so, so he shows us around the campus, and he's like, well, hey, if you want to, chapel's today at 11. It was like 10, 10, 10. He's like, you can be my guest at chapel. I was like, yeah, that'd be incredible. He, we, he's like, well, we better go over now because 5,000 people go to chapel. I'm like, 5,000 people attend the chapel? Is it mandatory? Like they have to swipe their spiritual ID cards and they get credit for class? He's like, no, 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 no. Chapel on our campus is completely optional. I'm like, 5,000 people show up to an optional chapel? He's like, yeah. We get there, the, 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 the speaker at the chapel stands up, opens the Bible to Ephesians, and starts challenging the students to be global with their degree. Everybody's taking notes. We dismiss in prayer. We're walking out. The campus minister's like, man, what'd you think? I'm like, that was incredible. 5,000 people at an optional chapel. The vast majority of them taking notes. A powerful message to be global with your degree. He said, if you think that's crazy, 62% of this entire campus will find themselves overseas after graduation. I'm like, 62% of this entire student body will find themselves overseas after graduation? I was bummed because we were at Brigham Young University, the headquarters of Mormonism. See, if you're a college student, you graduate from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and meander back to Salt Lake City and say, Mom, Dad, I don't want to go to North Africa. I don't want to take the teachings of Joseph Smith. I want to stay here, pad my resume, pay off my debt, and get engaged with this girl. Your mother and father will say to you, young man, sit down. You have a general obligation to take the teachings of Joseph Smith to those who live in North Africa. If you're a Christian college student... And you graduate from college and you come back to mom and dad and say, man, mom and dad, I checked into college with my agenda. I checked out with God's. I now know that I need to go to North Africa, learn Arabic, and be a church planner. Young man, sit down. Not you. Not now. Mormons give two years. Christians give excuses. 
How has God blessed you with your children? And are you launching them to the nations, expecting them to take it to the darkest corners of the earth, or already pre-planning family vacations every year in a house in your cul-de-sac? It's very difficult. It's very difficult to want to launch your children to the darkest corners of the earth. I mean, I remember distinctively after 622 college campuses challenging students, we had Camden, our first daughter. And all of a sudden, I, I'm praying with my wife with Camden there in the crib, and my wife's like, I'll pray first. And she's, I'm like, okay, babe. And she's like, okay, I'll pray, I'll, I'll pray first. And my wife, I'll never forget it. She lays her hand on the crib of Camden. And she's like, Father, I pray you'd stamp eternity on the heart of Camden, that she would know that she is the hope of the 500 million women trapped behind the veil of Islam. I pray you'd give her a heart for Arabic at a young age, Muslim friends, and a desire to go to Libya. And I pray she'd have the honor of being martyred in North Africa. I'm like, I'm next. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Lord, I pray Camden would love me and Chick-fil-A. Want to marry a man who loves me and golf, that she would reside in my neighborhood, and that she'd have in-law problems right away, that we might have them Christmas and Thanksgiving. No questions asked. <laughs> and my wife's like, Todd, what are you doing? And I said, Jessica, I want to be crystal clear about this. I spent seven years of my life recruiting other people's kids to go so mine didn't have to. <laughs> but isn't it true? I mean, we've got, we, we, the Lord, you know, the, the first question I asked college students when they come to me and say, my parents won't let me go to the nations. They are saying no to my mission trip to Peru. I'm like, well, did they dedicate you as a baby? Well, yeah, but they said that was just to get everybody together then go to Denny's. The hardest thing you will ever do is to take God's blessing and release it to the nations, whether it's finances, whether it's time, whether it's affluence, whether it's your business innovation, whether it's your children. And so when you transition to the New Testament, the nation of Israel was deep in disobedience. And if you had to graph out how they perceived God and the nations, here's what it would look like. God, Israel, God, Israel, God, Israel, God, Israel. And if you asked a Jew, hey, tell me about the other nations, they would say, I'm sorry, they don't have access to God because they're pork-eating pagan Gentile pigs. So when Jesus comes on the scene and begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, this is the paradigm that, he ha that he's trying to fight against. The nation of Israel saying, God, Israel, God, Israel, God, Israel. But Jesus is saying, God, Israel, nations, God, Israel, nations, God, Israel, nations. If you want to, you can turn to Luke chapter 4 in your Bible. We're going to stay here for about six minutes. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, this is when Jesus begins his ministry. The first 12 verses or so, he goes into the desert and he's tempted by Satan. He comes out of the desert around verse 16 or so. He goes into Nazareth, his hometown. He's given this, he obviously has some sort of reputation because he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. 
he opens up the scroll and begins reading the daily reading. It just so happens that what he's reading is the most messianic promise of all of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. If you're in your Bible, you can see it there in red. And he starts, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, bind of the broken heart of the spirit, you know, to, to freedom of the captive, sight of the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll and he sets it on the shelf. And people in the synagogue are like, who is this? And I say, we know him. Well, who is it? Well, we know him. This is Mary's son. This is Joseph's son. And then Jesus utters the first words of his public ministry as Luke explains it. Here's what Jesus says to begin his ministry. He says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was fear of famine throughout the land. Yet Elisha was sent to none of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only name in the Syrian. Now, when I read this passage as a white, wealthy Westerner, I'm completely confused because I'm historically removed from the cultural context. But when you peel back the veneer and begin to look at what is he saying, all of a sudden you realize he begins his ministry with God, Israel, nations. Watch this. Pharisees, who he's talking to, who represent the nation of Israel, I ask you this, in the time of Elisha, were there widows who needed God's help, who were Jews? Why, yes, there were many Jewish widows. Yet God, was sent, God sent the prophet to none of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, 180 miles north, a non-Israelite. And in the, in the days of the prophet Elisha, were there lepers who were Jews who needed God's cleansing? Why, yes. Yet the prophet was sent to no Jew, but instead to a Gentile military army officer that wanted to eradicate the nation of Israel, Naaman the Syrian. And look at the tension that emerges. Now, now, there's a law in the Old Testament, okay? This is, this is important to understand. There's a law in the Old Testament found in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. And the law of Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5 states, if a prophet speaks falsely, he can die immediately. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, if a prophet speaks falsely, he can die immediately. People call this the lynch law. Well, Jesus just said the nations deserve God's blessing. So the Pharisees say, liar, false prophet. They, and they say, this is ridiculous. And they institute the lynch law. And watch what happens. All the people in the synagogue were furious. They just said, Jesus has got to be lying because the nations shouldn't deserve the blessing. So they take him to the cliff of Nazareth and try to throw him off. Do you realize Jesus would have been killed at the end of his first paragraph of his public ministry had he not done a miracle in Luke 4. His miracle was walking through the crowd unnoticed. They institute the lynch law. They try to three times, and it fails all three times. Luke 4 is the first time the Pharisees try to institute the lynch law in the life of Christ. John 8 is the second time they try to institute the lynch law, where Jesus says, I tell you, you are of your father, the devil. That'll get you the lynch law every time, by the way. <laughs> and then the third time they try to institute the lynch law is John 10, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. 
The further you read into the Old Testament, the more disobedient the nation of Israel is. The further you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the more disobedient the Pharisees are and the nation of Israel becomes. Many people, because he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus does a miracle. He heals a demon-possessed man. At the end of Matthew 12, the disciples with Jesus, the Pharisees come up and say, we know how you healed that man. You're the prince of demons. You're Beelzebub. Matthew chapter 12, something happens. Jesus says, Israel, enough. I'm pulling away from, my, from, from Israel. I am going to only pour into my disciples. And he begins to speak in parables. There's no parables before Matthew 13. Why? He's holding out hope for the nation of Israel. But in Matthew 12, when Israel says, you are Satan himself, Jesus says, Israel, enough. Matthew 13 through Matthew 28, he speaks in parables. For those who have ears can hear. He pulls his disciples aside. He asked them a question in, in, in Matthew chapter 16. He says, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. For the first time since Genesis chapter 12, something happens in humanity. Jesus says, Israel, enough. I'm creating my church, and my church will be my hands and feet to the nations. Where Israel fails, the church will succeed. Jesus uses the word church once in Matthew 16. He uses the word church twice in Matthew 18. And in Acts chapter 2, the church is birthed. This is what is important for you and I, okay? Here it is. You ready? The reason, this is what it tells me. It tells me the reason there is a church is because there is a pre-existing mission of God yet to be fulfilled that began in Genesis 12. I'll say it again. The reason there is a church is because there is a pre-existing mission of God that began in Genesis 12 that is yet to be fulfilled. And so we need to align our blessings to where Israel fails, the church succeeds. But ask the average person how they approach God's church. Well, I go to church, but it's for me, my comfort, community, and convenience. I don't see it as a mechanism to get the gospel across the planet. I see it as a mechanism to care for my personal needs and intentions. And so that's what happens. And Jesus will give the Great Commission text. There's not one Great Commission. That's a missions myth. There's actually five Great Commissions. There's five Great Commissions. He gives these Great Commissions. He says, the church... Church, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. The first great commission text is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is the first great commission text. The second great commission text that he says to the church is Mark 16, 15. Go and preach, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's the second great commission text. Matthew 28, the first great commission text. Mark 16, 15, the second great commission text. The third great commission text is Luke 24. This is written, Christ will suffer and rise from the dead, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all the nations. The fourth great commission text is John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so send I you. 
And the fifth Great Commission text is, of course, Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why five commissionings? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Mark 16, 15. Luke 24, 46 through 48. John 20, 21. And Acts 1.8. Why five commissionings? And I think because Jesus realized our tendency like Israel is the more we're blessed, guess what happens? The more we love the blessing instead of the blesser. For the rest of the New Testament, Paul the Apostle is just going to take Old Testament promises for the nation of Israel and bring it into the church. Here's an example. This is what the Lord has commanded us. He's, us, he's talking to the church of Antioch. And then he goes back to Isaiah 49, 6, and he says, where Israel fails, you will succeed. Israel didn't want this promise to be a light to the nations. So church, guess what? It's now yours. I will make you, church, a light for the nations. I will make you, church, the ability to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When people ask me what's the number one missions verse in the entire New Testament, I tell them this, this next verse, Galatians chapter 3. I've never heard it preached at a missions conference. But it's by far, in my opinion, the summation of the mission of God. He redeemed us. Who's he talking to? The church. In order the blessings given to Israel, also known as Abraham, might finally make their way to the Gentiles or the nations. What a one-verse summary of the mission of God. He redeemed us, church, that what began with Israel is ours to complete. Peter writes a letter to seven churches in Asia. How does he explain to them their new community as followers of Christ? Remember what God said in Mount Sinai, that you are a royal priesthood, a go-betweener. You, church of Asia, are God's royal go-betweeners. You're a priesthood. Well, who do we go between? Between God and the nations. 1 John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. And of course, the conclusion found in Revelation, it happens. It happens. In Revelation, we see what began in Genesis 12 with Abraham going out to the scattering of the nations as a multicultural worship service. The Bible's one book from Genesis 1 through 11 is just the introduction. Genesis 12, the plot begins of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, transition to the church, reaching the nations, the conclusions in Revelation. There before me was a great multitude, Revelation 7, 9, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. But here's, here's what I want you to do. When you leave here Friday, when you leave here Friday, go home, unpack, get life back in order. Go back to work Monday. Wednesday, text your friend for coffee. Text your best friend who's a follower of Christ who, who didn't come to Gold Lake this weekend. Text your best friend who's a follower of Christ. Take him to Starbucks before work. And I want you to say to him this. I just want to let you know, over this past week, I've realized that God's mission involves us and that we need to leverage our blessing. And I know your blessings. We need to leverage our blessings for God's global mandate to touch the nations. Would you join me over the next seven months inventorying our blessings and seeing how we can maximally use that to touch the nations?
and your friend will stand up from the table, and they'll walk over to the stir straw station, and they'll grab a napkin, and they'll come back to the table, and from their pocket, they'll pull a pen, and on the napkin, they'll draw two circles. And on these two circles, they'll say, God is, God me, God me, God me. And all of a sudden, you realize this is the way the average person views their life. All your friends who go to church with you and do community with you and do life with you, start poking at their blessings to be used for God's mission. Ho, 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 ho. See, this is how I choose to tithe, God, me. This is how I read my Bible. I highlight, underline what I like. This is how I pray about me, my family, and, and my, my marriage. This is how I choose vacation time, a church. This is how I raise my kids. American Christianity is an interesting phenomenon when you begin to look at it closely. Let's take a break. Come back for the five questions of the summer. <laughs>